Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners to The Word podcast may wonder why I get such (laughs) hilarious responses to my simple good evening. Uh, In the year 1979, I think it was, (laughs) I was a junior freelance on sounds. And as a junior freelance, you didn't usually get the plum gigs at all. But when Led Zeppelin were due to play again at Nebworth for the first time in quite a number of years, um, I was asked if I would like to represent the the paper and cover the gig. And it was only when I got there that I realised why I'd been chosen to do this particular job. And that was because uh, the manager of Led Zeppelin had threatened dire consequences on anybody from Sounds turning up to review the show because Sounds had somehow run a photograph in the kind of jokey section at the front of the paper, uh, which was allegedly of Peter Grant's mother, which is, you know, rarely the way to endear yourself to a a manager of of any kind, but particularly this one. And so I spent the day uh, at Nebworth, uh, beads of perspiration dropping off me, you know, at the prospect that I might run into this fearsome character and he might choose to take his revenge on me. So hopefully we may get to the bottom of what was behind that kind of thing in the next 45 minutes because we're joined by the author of the first biography of the late Peter Grant, uh, manager of Led Zeppelin, it's called Bring It On Home. Would you please welcome Mark Blake. Thank you. So, Mark, let's talk about it. Peter Grant's mother is a good place to start. It is a good place to start. Yeah, she was about six foot three, smoked like a chimney. Six foot three? Yes, same as him. Smoked like a chimney. She came from Croydon. And uh, when she went to give birth to him, she didn't know... He didn't know who his father was. We think she did. But... She went to a special hospital where young mothers gave up their children for adoption. 
and she wasn't that young, she was actually 42. So I think she decided, no, this little bundle of joy, I'm going to take him home with me. And that was Peter Grant. I thought you were going to say Peter Grant said, no one's taking me home. No one's taking me home. That's it. He fought his way out of the cot. So what yeah. year are we talking about? When was it? 1935. 1935. So it's an, another generation before any of the members of Led Zeppelin. So Mother was quite church-going? Very church-going, very religious, apparently. Um, and so which I think that sort of impacted on her having a child out of wedlock, you know, as they said at the time. And yeah. that made her... That, I th- so I think he carried a lot of that with him, a lot of resentment about that. Never knew who his dad was. But he's obviously a very complicated kind of psychological makeup, isn't he? Because yes. you know, the, the, there's a bit where you, he goes to school in Norway. I think grew up in Norwood, actually. Yeah. And he goes to school. Is that Norwood? There's a picture of Norwood. Norwood. <laughs> probably Brilliant. not in the... Uh, as thing as there's a horse and cart in yeah. it. But probably not, <laughs> not that old. in the 1930s. Yeah. <laughs> but he went to the school it's a very poor and... Area. That's right. And uh, was in a special class for children they, they beyond in, parental that's control. Right. We found, yeah. I found this out. He'd been put into a special class. He often used to say he left school at 13. But he didn't. He just got kicked out of one at 13. But he did sort of wash up in another one which was, I discovered later, was closed down many years later because it was one of the worst performing schools in the country. And I think it was Tony Blair's government just went, we ha- you have to get rid of this school, it's so bad. And that was the one that Peter went to. But yeah, at some point he was taken out and uh, put into a school for parent- kids that were out of parental control. And apparently he turned up there one day and bumped into his cousin, Geoffrey. Well, what, what are you doing here? He goes, well, I'm out of parental control as well. So it's like... His, his uncle, he was his uncle's kid, so they were sort of, he sort of came away from it thinking, well, yeah, maybe there's something in the family. <laughs> and when I did tell Peter's son, Warren, about this, who himself came close to becoming out of parental control, he did sort of look at me as if to say, well, you know, it makes sense. You know. So was he one of those people who, who kind of uh, was a bit of a terror during the war? Where I, it, I, people were thinking about other things, obviously. Do you, do you know what? I think, it's, I think he was. I mean, the, the school got evacuated and they actually ended up in Charterhouse. They got evacuated to Charterhouse Public School, uh, which is just the complete opposite of where he'd come from. And they got sort of billeted in this particular block, sort of separated from kind of fee-paying yeah. kids and so on. And there were apparently were some terrible fights that went on uh, back there at the time. But I think really what happened is he just didn't get an education. And it's very, obviously very common with a lot of kids that were evacuated at the time. They sort of just got forgotten slipped about. Slipped by, didn't it's they? It's completely slipped by. And when, so when the war's over, comes back to Norwood, goes, goes into this terrible school in Croydon, doesn't know anything... And, you know, next thing you know, him and Uncle Geoffrey are sort of bundled away in their special unit, you know. Was he literate? I mean, was he... He read and write and so forth? Yes, he could. I mean, I've seen his um, address book, actually, and we found an old address book of his from the 70s. I mean, there's a few spelling mistakes in there. Freddie Mercury's name was spelt wrong, but, you know... The number, I think, was right. You know, right the yeah. gist of it. He said Freddie Mercury Queen, so he knew what was what. But no, I mean, yeah, he could he could read and write. It certainly wasn't that bad, no. Right, OK. <laughs> so what happened at the end of his schooling, then? At the end of the schooling, he left at 15. We managed to find out... Because he, he lied quite a lot about his childhood and told these stories, one of which was that he was gone at 13. We found out he was 15. A lovely little old lady in Croydon Town Hall got the records out for me. And, and sent me the, showed me the form that said he'd left. We think he was maybe expelled. And I think the first job he had 
was at the Croydon Empire, which is one of these old variety theatres, long gone now, where he got a job sort of sweeping the stage, fixing the curtain. Which doing... had the tableau vivant. He had the tableau vivant. With, with the, the, the naked the... women who had to keep still. Mm, the Piccadilly They couldn't move, because if they moved, it was pornographic. That's right? right. And yeah. I didn't know that was still going on in the 1950s. Yeah. Be about, not, earliest would have been 1950, 51. I thought that was something pre-war. But apparently not. They were called the Piccadilly Nudes, and they, they were big in Soho, but if you brought them down to Croydon to glamorise the place a bit. <laughs> and that would, have been, that would have been one of the things. But I think he was... Uh, later on, we found interviews that Peter did that had never been published or anything before, filmed interviews, which he talked a lot about how fascinated he was by being in the theatre, you know, seeing everything from kind of plate spinners and Led Zeppelin... Played Earl's Court in '75. One of the support acts was plate spinners. He started, he had, and they dropped the plates. They were fucking terrible. <laughs> he, and I thought that was quite interesting because that's where he got the idea from. So the, you know, he had pigs, sort of dancing pigs on stage with Zeppelin, and I think he must have seen that sort of thing at the Croydon Empire. There's a bit later on... Dancing pigs? Yeah, Yeah, dancing pigs. Dancing pigs with policemen's helmets on. Oh, as you do. Now it makes sense. Yeah, it's the 70s, come on. But there's a bit, bit, jumping a bit, there's a bit where they they play um, Stay Away away to Heaven for the first time. Mm. He tells them not to do anything at the end of the song. Yes, because I I think that's what happened later on, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and and stand there and make it look like you've done something important and the audience will suddenly develop a sense of awe about the song. Now, he must have got those ideas from working in theatre. I think he did, yes, because he never interfered with the music. I mean, his daughter told me, Look, my dad couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, was the exact phrase that she used. Yeah. So he left the music to them completely. But yeah, that was true. They, they were playing it, I think, just in the middle of the set, playing Stairway to Heaven, because it was a new song. It wasn't out yet. Yeah. And he cottoned on quite quickly. He said, look, when, when you stopped, to John Bonham particularly, don't fuck about with your drums yeah. and, and, and stop making a noise. Just sort of, you know pause right be serious so he had some people will believe you he had yeah. some flair for show business i think so definitely yeah right right yeah and so did some acting didn't he he'd done some acting yeah he did he was a bit part actor for quite a while uh, there, there he, he is. is isn't it yes with the great sid james that's right it's a show called citizen james uh which was a comedy show which i found on very excited to find on youtube like we all do so I'm scrolling through and scrolling through and suddenly i thought who's that fat bloke he looked familiar, and I realised it was Peter. And uh, he's, uh, yeah, he has his, his names in the credits at the end, but he did a lot of stuff like this, a lot of extras. He turns up in Lolita as well, Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. And there's a scene in a hotel lobby, and Peter Sellers is there sort of trying to check in with a young woman. And there's all the, he's supposed to be played, I knew he played a bellhop. There's all these bellhops scuttling around in white jackets and sort of moving luggage around and so on I thought where's Peter Grant where's Peter Grant and all of a sudden like this shadow this sort of lump this thing appears in the biggest white jacket that's straining just in profile just for about three seconds and sort of looks around it's like there's your guy unmistakable gone yeah and then gone so what yeah what what was the combination of things he was doing then at this time he was doing a bit of extra work a bit of extras yeah wrestling 
He was a wrestler. That was earlier on. Yeah. No, that's another it's interesting bit. Talk he gets hold of a guy called Jeff Dexter, doesn't he? And he says he Jeff tries Dexter. to promote him as a twisting wrestler. That's right. Because Jeff, the twist yeah. has come in and wrestling's fashionable. So he tries to, he tries to weld the two, two together. together. It's and, a twisting and, wrestler. I'll make a the twisting wrestler. And, yeah. that was it. and Jeff, I spoke to Jeff about this because I knew Jeff had known... Um, I mean, Jeff Dexter was a, you know, for DJ. anyone who doesn't know, he was a DJ later yeah, on yeah. in the 60s and, you know, a real scene star from the time. But he's biggest claim to fame was that at 15 he'd done the twist he was the twist at the lyceum and been banned for it was considered sexually provocative he was about 14 15 looked like the milky bar kid and they 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 threw him out but a a, a touring orchestra gave him a job cyril stapleton orchestra so jeff would get up on stage and twist presumably so only one day he's backstage at the lyceum peter grant comes in with jimmy savile we have to say pause for a moment there (laughs) And Jimmy Savile was also a wrestler, of course, at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they come in, and Peter and Jeff told me the story. Peter took him aside, and, you know, you want to make a few quid, you know. He goes, how about getting in a swimsuit, twisting, and being a wrestler? And that was the idea. He'd put on a pair of sort of shorts. It's, budgie, it's budgie smugglers, yeah. and 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 then presumably wrestle, and in between do a bit of twisting by the side <laughs> of the ring. And, and and Jeff said at the time, he goes, well, "No, I don't think so, Peter." He's like, well, "Are you sure?" You know. So, you know, it was anything to make money. I Absolutely. think he was driving a cab. He was acting in stuff like that. You know, being as he was Robert Morley. He was a bouncer. Double. Was a bouncer at the two bouncer eyes. at the two eyes was Coffee the first shows, one. Yeah. Bouncer at the uh, Flamingo. And at Murray's Cabaret Club, which was, uh, you know, a more high-end establishment, yeah, yeah, yeah. where you sort of had Princess Margaret and Ronnie Cray kind of sharing a bottle of so champagne. D- d- on the wrestling, mm. uh, d- d- people often refer to him as former wrestler. How much mm. wrestling did he do? I don't really know. I think it was a year or so at the most. But it started Did off... he wrestle under his own name? No, he wrestled under several names. Uh, His Royal Highness Count Bruno Alessio of Milan... <laughs> was, was the one she occupies the uh, you, the whole poster. thing doesn't it yeah. Yeah. it goes from the royal family yeah. to being a lord as well yeah. that yeah. was that was the main one but he started off as a plant in the audience Go with, on. with a hungarian dwarf this was the thing there was a there was a hungarian dwarf strongman who wrestled at the time he was incredibly strong and what he would do would challenge people in the audience so i can lift anyone in this audience and peter would put his hand up and say, I bet you can't lift me. And he'd come out and lie on a plank of wood and the guy would have a sort of a, a belt round his neck and just lift him, lift a little, little guy standing on two stools and would somehow lift sort of six foot three Peter Grant up. So the, that was the idea. Being, you know, being lifted by a Hungarian dwarf with a leather mm. belt. I mean, later on, we're going to get to Led Zeppelin, obviously, and nothing's strange. Nothing's, nothing's nothing strange. No. In fact, it's probably a, a yeah. bit of a picnic, you know. Yeah, it was the beginnings of it. it, the beginning yeah. of it. But he worked for Don Arden, the legendary Don Arden, Sharon mm. Osbourne's dad, of course, and yeah. he was the manager of, I think, the Small Faces and the Animals and various people. Now, mm. what did he learn from that? The stories about him working with... Um, Eddie Cochran and, and Gene Vincent. That's and right. People and, you yeah. know, what, what did he learn from that experience? Well, I think Don was one of these guys who got in at the ground floor of rock and roll when it first came to Britain, American bands. He'd put anyone on, he'd promote bands, and he sussed, let's get you know, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Gene Vincent, let's get them over. And Peter, I think, learned from him was his ambition, because Don would take, never take no for an answer. Whatever he wanted to do, he'd do. And he had a reputation for riding roughshod over everybody whether that was rival promoters, but also his own acts. 
And I think that was something Peter learned from Don, was also that if you have enough front, you can get away with anything. And that's the exact quote that, that came out at the time. He didn't like Don, and they fell out later on. But Don had a lot of front. So Peter went to work for him originally. His first job was driving Sharon Osborne to school. And, you know, if he didn't have much on, Sharon said he'd be there at the school gates to pick her up again. But, you know, after a little while, he soon started to... Don started to give him a bit more responsibility. And that's when he started working in the office as a promoter himself. But he was still driving. He was a driver for Gene Vincent, uh, Eddie Cochran and so on. That was, he was a road manager, as they called it at the time. Yeah, so, mm. so, so when are we talking about here in the, in the 50s and, and early 60s, mm. when these people were coming over? So... I, what was his role? He, he drove them, was it also to get them paid? Yes, it was. I mean, it's called road manager, but that, what that entailed was driving them there, unloading the gear, and then going and getting them paid. And that was his thing. You, he always got paid. He always made sure they got paid. As he said himself at the time, being six foot three and weighing eight, probably about 18, 19 stone at that time, people weren't going to argue with him. And, you know, the world of promoting acts here and in the States was still a bit like the Wild West. Yep. It wasn't unusual to turn up at a club and it's like, oh, I haven't got your money, or they were five minutes late, or there's only 500 people in there, not 1,000. And, of course, nothing was ticketed. It's not. It was cash, you know, on the door. And he, got, he was very, very good at always getting the money. Yeah, there's a lovely mm. story about Chuck Berry refusing mm. to go on stage because he, has, he thinks he hasn't been paid enough. And did he, what did he, he crowbarred a he, cigarette machine? Yeah, I mean, he would never go on stage unless he'd had every last shilling. And I think it was a couple of shillings short. And he went, no, I'm not going on. I mean, there'd been a story before where Peter was on his hands and knees feeding pound notes under the door just to get him out. And come on, Chuck, banging on the door and feeding the money. <laughs> but with the, with the shillings, they went round and they couldn't scavenge enough cash. He's like, fuck's sake, who's got money? And no one had. So he went, found a cigarette mas- machine and he did what was called a restless slap, which is a particular slap you can do that makes a very good noise, but doesn't, your opponent pretends to be hurt. But in this case, he absolutely whacked it, broke it open and scooped out the change and they gave Chuck Berry his money. Another one of those. Another one of those sort of but possibly apocryphal stories. Could be, no, but getting the money was a key thing, was he? He learned yeah. from Don Arden. Well, it still yeah. is. But, and yeah. Don, Don Arden was incredibly disrespectful of the artist. So he completely ripped off. And we can say this. He ripped off yeah. the animals. He ripped off the small faces. He didn't give them the money that, that they were owed. And Grant felt very strongly that that was wrong. He did. That, that's the, the, the strange thing. The source of the power was, yeah. was the musicians. That's the strange thing about Peter, is that for all this sort of treading on other people, which he undoubtedly did... He was weirdly and almost sort of quite sweetly defensive of everybody he worked for. And the idea was they had to get paid. He had this real respect for the talent, for whatever it was, whether it was the Nashville teens or Eddie Cochran, whoever. He insisted that they all got paid. And that was the difference with Don. Because Don, as you said, Don thought the artist worked for him. And Peter always believed he worked for the artist. And I think... In doing so, his idea was if they concentrate on the art, if you want, the, the money, if it's good enough, the money will come and we'll all make money, we'll all get rich. So the Nashville teens that you mm. mentioned there were, were uh, on that tour, they opened that yes. tour in 1964, which I'm proud to say, first gig I ever went to was that show. 
fantastic. Started with the Nashville teens, the animals, Carl Perkins. Doesn't he look young? (laughs) (laughs) And, but whether they were his first management clients. One of his first, yeah, him and Mickey Mose sort of picked them up. They had had a song that hit Tobacco Road. But the big problem is they weren't teenagers. And and this is something that used to really bother Peter when he when he's with them because, uh, you know, there was one of them called Arthur Arthur Sharp who I spoke to. He just went, oh, you know. I I said, what was the problem? He said, oh, he's had stubble. He goes, and Peter was like, fucking have a shave. You know, you don't look like a teenager. You know, before the gig, have a shave. He goes, well, I had a shave this morning. What do you have another one? You know, (laughs) because he was 24 years old at the time. You know, so they were all a bit too old they weren't really teenagers right mm. so he got involved with the animals as well didn't he on he this tour he did but he sort of tour managed the animals for right. Don Arden um, there's a lot of stories about Eric Burden with, with that I mean Eric Burden always maintains Peter was the best road manager they ever had because he forced him to get out of bed in the mornings and be there on time and Eric apparently never did a lot of that before and uh, the first time he met Peter and they went to sign their contract, Eric Burden said to him, he said, oh, we've met before. And Peter went, why is that? He goes, you once threw me down a corridor. Well, what was that for? He goes, well, I was hanging around Jim Vincent's dressing room and you told me to fuck off and I wouldn't go. <laughs> it's like, Peter's like, just sign, you know. <laughs> but that was, that was it. And they respected him because of that. Although that relationship did sour a little bit later on. So he was also involved around about this time with Mickey Most. Yes. Right. What yes. were they doing? Mickey Most was his mate from the two eyes. Mickey used to serve the coffee and Peter did the, um, did the door. And at that point in time, Mickey was looking after the Yardbirds. And he wasn't really interested in the Yardbirds. They weren't having hits the way he wanted them to have hits. And Peter sort of hit on the idea of let's... I'll, I'll, I'll you know, give me the Yardbirds. He sort of ended up getting hold of the Yardbirds. I mean, Mickey was their producer, Simon Napier-Bell was their manager, and neither of them were interested, so sort of Peter slipped in as a rack management client. They had rack records uh, and putting out all Mickey's singles and so on. They had this management company. They couldn't really do much with the management company. Peter had had various acts, but they got, he got hold of the Yardbirds. And I think that was the first big act he managed. And it's interesting know. that managers didn't used to travel with the bands at that time. Not they just so sat much, behind no. a big desk raking in the cash yeah. or whatever cliches you want to come up with. But, but he actually travelled with the Yardbirds to ensure, didn't he, that, 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 that they got, they the got paid. Because yes. that's really interesting because you know, the whole industry was taking advantage of, of, of people's totally. keenness to, to get out and play yeah. and uh, how easy it would be to exploit them. And, yeah. and literally thuggery, wasn't it? I mean, getting the money off these guys. It was completely. I mean... Yeah. Chris Dreyer of the Yardbirds said to me that the, the first time the Yardbirds ever made proper money is when they were with Peter. He said, we went to America and we came home with money in our pockets. And that had never happened before because he ensured that they got paid and he, he dealt with it fairly. So they were thrilled, they were absolutely thrilled by the guy. They were slightly wary of him, but, you know, he made things happen for them. So how did the Yardbirds transform themselves into Led Zeppelin? Well, they split up, basically, and two of them wanted to go off and do a kind of pop thing. And Chris Dreyer and Jimmy Page decided to stay together and do something else. And I think you can hear the beginnings of Led Zeppelin towards the end of the Yardbirds' career. Definitely a lot of things they were doing live on stage. And in America, they realised FM radio was coming in. There were all these college venues that were very hip to having that kind of album-orientated music. And so the Yardbirds sort of fizzled away and uh, Peter and Jimmy 
came up with the idea of initially what was going to be the new Yardbirds, which they very quickly changed to Led Zeppelin. And so, now Jimmy Page had worked as a session man and was mm. known within the industry and also had some money, didn't he, to, to yes. kind of finance starting this thing. He did. He... So they weren't having to go to a record company cap in no. hand, were they? No, they did it all themselves. It was very much financed, I think, by Jimmy and to an extent Peter. And they paid, Jimmy paid for the first Led Zeppelin album. They recorded it, paid for the cover, all the studio time, everything... And then they effectively took it and leased it, if you like, almost right. to Atlantic Records. Had yeah. that ever been done before? I, I don't imagine think it had. had. Not at that because it put them in no. an incredibly strong position, didn't it? So, but this it is did. what we've mm. done, so you, you can tell the extent of it, and uh, yeah. this is what it's worth. I lo- everybody seemed to want Jimmy Page, though, at that time, just before Zeppelin. People were trying to sign that band. I didn't realise how many people were trying to sign them until I did the book. Everybody wanted that without even hearing any of the music. When Alan Klein tried to get involved in, you know the. You know, he wanted a piece of it. Everybody was after that band. So there was incredible foresight by by, by, by Peter Grant sort of seeing Cream and seeing, um, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix and stuff and realising that there was a market for for music Mm. in much bigger venues, wasn't there? Yes. And he felt that was what was going to happen with Led Zeppelin, that there was going to be a circuit, there was going to be an arena circuit that they would dominate. I don't even think they knew the arena circuit was there at the time. I think they were just looking for these sort of very hip clubs, uh, you know, in Detroit, uh, Chicago... Denver, there were all these various places all on the West Coast and the East Coast, things like the Fillmore. Those were the places they were looking at because they realised there was an audience there that didn't care about singles but would listen to albums and would sit and properly listen to the music. It wasn't a pop thing. I don't think they were thinking even as far ahead as arenas at that point. Of course, once it took off, then it took off at great speed. Yeah. So tell us about the relationship between Grant and Jimmy Page, because that's obviously yeah. at the core of it. It is at the core of it. And I mean, a lot of people said to me, even Peter's own daughter was just like, whatever Jimmy wanted, you know, Peter would do. It, it was almost a kind of father's... I'd say almost, almost father's son, but not really. But Peter just seemed to focus on Jimmy Page and think, this guy is a genius, this guy is a talent. I will stick to this guy like glue, and whatever he wants to do, I will do. And he sort of cosseted him. I mean, Jimmy is an only, is an only child, and I think had, by his own admission, been quite spoiled since he was young. And Peter was the next person to come along and really spoil him, you know, which explains a lot in later life. But right. he very much nurtured him, and what, all through the Zeppelin, whatever Jimmy Page wants. And Jimmy interestingly, gets. allowed Page to have... I think Page had 50% of the profits and the other 50% were divided up between I believe three members so. of the group and, pl- and Grant. And Grant, yeah, I believe. So Page was in a pretty a strong position. He was in a strong position, which, of course, is the crux of all the problems yeah. that you have with them now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and for the last sort of 30 years, yeah. Yeah. So he, he <laughs> signs them, you know, to an American deal, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Armand Ertegun, mm. Atlantic, mm. who is running around trying to sign white rock acts after having totally. built his career out of mm. black R&B acts. Mm. That's right, it was Jerry Wexler, I think, that signed them. And, but Wexler said, I, look, he was terrified of Grant. And he said, Armand will take over. You know, Armand was the guy. They used to call him Omelette, didn't Omelette they? Omelette, yeah, it was Peter's nickname <laughs> for him, his Omelette. <laughs> But his, his, his daughter told me I'm that. sure he didn't complain. No, he didn't <laughs> say anything. I think he put it behind his back. It's like, you know. But no, they got on very, very well, apparently. There was a sort... I think the truth is... I mean, Alma Ertigan was, a, you know... Uh, I think he'd done a few deals in his time. I think he saw something in Peter. They definitely saw something in each other. 
Yeah. But how much did these kind of physical threats matter to the way he did things? I think it was hugely important because people saw this six foot three guy come sort of walking into a room. Six foot three, his weight was up to 28 stone at some point. 28 stone at some point. Plus, of course, he sort of started to affect this look by the early 70s where he sort of let his hair grow long even though he was going bald. He had, the, we can see the beginnings there with the moustache and the beard. Kind he had his ear pierced. Buddha gypsy. Yeah, sort of, yeah, Buddha, yeah. yeah that <laughs> that's, is, right, that's yeah. exactly what it is. It's a sort of Buddha pirate gypsy. I think, yeah, 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 pirate. But yeah. The, so the scarves and the rings. The earrings. The rings on his ear. Helen Grant, the daughter, said to me, she said, you know, that was his costume. That was a costume he put on. And I think it's almost like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll dress like this, I'll be that guy. And particularly in America, they were, you know, they were terrified of him. He'd come walking into the boardroom, you know, people would, people would shit themselves. I mean, <laughs> and, and apparently what he also did, there was some incidents at Atlantic in New York, particularly with Jimmy Page and the kind of whole Satan, Satanism connection, the whole Alistair Crowley thing that Jimmy was interested in. That really shook them up at Atlantic in New York. And so if Peter wanted to make a real impression, he'd bring Jimmy in with him. And there was a couple of cases of secretaries scuttling off because they were scared he was going to come in and put a spell on them or something. So they'd, they'd sort of disappear. So like, having people frightened of you is quite yeah, useful in the it's business. It's hugely useful. You never, <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a great thing, yeah. So Led Zeppelin instantly take off, really, don't they? Yes. And yes. the story very quickly becomes with Led Zeppelin just how much money they're making. And That's yeah. right how huge their popularity is. I mean, it's kind of... It's a new generation on from the Beatles, isn't it? It is. It's a whole different kind of ball game. And and obviously, this is round about 1972, where Peter's responsible for introducing what was called the 90-10 split. We kind of rode out booking agents in America and said, we we don't need you. You know, instead of 60-40, where the band gets 60, you get 40. Now, we get 90, you get 10. And 10% of Led Zeppelin was a lot of money. But that absolutely broke the business, and he made a lot of enemies as a result. So that was the idea that we don't need promoters, really. We promote ourselves. We're doing you a favour. We're doing you a favour. They set up Concerts West, was the big agency with Jerry Weintraub, who who looked after Elvis Presley and so on. And they'd farm out occasional gigs to little promoters, almost as a favour. I mean, that was another side of Peter. He could be weirdly generous. You know, so the odd guy in Chicago that had looked after him in 68 got a gig in 75, had to mortgage his house to, to be able to sort of front it, but he would get the money. But that this 90-10 just killed the killed And also that. it was a cash economy, wasn't it? I mean, yes, he, it was. he, he was paid in cash, and therefore he was cash. regularly lugging through customs. $200,000. in a bag. In a red flight bag, yeah. Him or Richard Cole, his right-hand man. You know, Richard phoned me up, actually, after the book came out and said, look... He goes, I understand, you know, you've got to say that Peter had the money. He goes, I had the money in the red flight bag. It was my job most of the time. I said, well, you know, sounds better if I say Peter's doing it. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but there's loads of incidents of the book where he just turns up at places and there's a bag, he's got a bag of money. He's with got him. a bag, he always had bags of money with him all the time. Yeah. I mean, the, and he leaves it behind a he, lot of he time. Leaves, yes, he did. There was a, a thing in there, he left it under the table at the Coach and Horses in Soho. Um, and that was in like How 19- much money? Uh, several thousand, and that was in 1968. Yeah. And he's like, I've got to go to the bank now, you know, went back and took it. Um, And that carried him to carry on throughout his career. But the thing he used to do was use a a, a supermarket carrier bag. 
so it, you know the worst supermarket the, the 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 budget supermarket whatever they were in the 70s he would have make sure he had sort of 20 grand in, 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 so when he's like you know you know you've made it if you've got Marks and Spencer's bag. That was, a, that was the idea. But he'd prefer Summerfield or Asgard or something <laughs> like this. And it was, again, it's about, it was a front. It was a way to unnerve people. You know, he comes into a meeting, pulls out a horrible, shitty old bag, probably with a couple of receipts still in the bottom, and tips 20 grand on the table. So what was his part, if any, in the, um, in the kind of relationship that Led Zeppelin didn't have with the record company i.e. you'll mm. put out Led Zeppelin 4 with no name on it and no number on it anything mm. you won't we won't do any of the things that you want doing mm. was he in favour of that kind of thing oh absolutely yeah I think he was because he, he never there's never an incident where he appears to question anything that Jimmy Page says he wants to do I mean all of these ideas were generated by Jimmy on his own or Peter and Jimmy but particularly talk about Zeppelin Four. I mean, that created all kinds of grief, and the album didn't come out, I don't think, till November 71 or something, and it should have come out three months earlier. They were touring America. But he would not budge on the idea of not having the name of the band or the name of the album on the but cover. Because it's, totally. it's all very indie, really, wasn't it? It is, in, yeah. In, yeah. in an odd way. Because also in 1971, that's when they did the the tour of the, the clubs in the UK, mm. didn't they? And yeah. universities, which yeah. they can't have done for the money. They no. just did that to... They, I think they did it because one of the things about... And I think this may well have been a Peter Grant idea. Peter was weirdly sensitive to any criticism at all, especially in the music papers, as mentioned earlier. And he would take against things, but he would also get incredibly hurt by any comments that were made. And I think around that time, people were saying... in the Melody Maker, NME and so on, that oh, Zeppelin are getting too big for their boots, they're only playing America. And I think it was a sort of a slightly clumsy attempt to, well, you know, we'll show you, we'll go back to the clubs. And of course, the demand outstripped the supply and it turned into a nightmare because the gigs were completely oversubscribed. And we tried to book them back in the marquee and John G, the manager of the art marquee, picked up the phone. He said, oh, it's Peter Grant, I want to book Led Zeppelin. He told him to fuck off and put the phone down. He thought it was a wind-up. You know, he kept having to call back. Go, no, John, it's me. <laughs> no, I really do want to put Led Zeppelin so back in the market. Do you think there was something about him and them that wanted to be loved? Oh, completely, yeah. Well, he's rejected child. I probably felt rejected as a child. I think this is the root of a lot of it. Because he was quite wounded yeah. by the fact, as were the band, yeah. that the press didn't like them. The, yes, the, press, the, press, the British press didn't like them. Actually, the American press didn't like them. No. The I Rolling mean, Stone loathed them, didn't they? Yeah, until sort of Cameron Crowe came along. And then, then you know... But there were certain key journalists that 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 were that were considered all right. Yeah. That was the exact word that I was told by by Richard Cole. He said certain journalists were all right, but Just never the, more than all right. It's amazing yeah. that such a thug could be so thin-skinned, though. It's <laughs> it is. Peculiar, yeah. Really. Yeah. Well, there was that famous incident with the Melody Maker where he was spoke. Peter was rumoured to be taking over management of Emerson Lake and Palmer. Which apparently he wasn't, but the um, cartoonist in The Melody Maker did this fantastic cartoon of a gigantic whale, a sort of bloated whale with Peter's face on. And sort of the members of Led Zeppelin and Emerson, Lake and Palmer swilling around inside the stomach and all these pound notes flying out 
sort of the hole. Very old hole. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there was a phone call made to, oh, yeah. to, Ray, to Ray Coleman, I think, who believe was the editor. A bit late for made. that, yeah. Yeah. after publication. Yeah. But that cartoonist did leave afterwards and go on to a, a glittering career at The Guardian as a political cartoonist. Oh, right. He okay. did survive. Another great moment of theatre, I mean, we just backtrack very slightly, it was 1970, I think it was the Bath Festival, where, where he insisted, am I right, Grant insisted that the group Led Zeppelin not only headlined, but went on precisely as the sunset. Mm. That's right. Mm. So what happened there? He just wanted the lights, he wanted he, all that drama. And yeah, just he the... wanted the drama. Of the sun. I think there was a sort of a tour or some kind of hill in the background. He wanted the uh, sun going down. So he'd phoned up the, the sort of meteorological office and wanted to know exactly when the sun was going to go down at a certain time and then told Freddie Bannister, the promoter, that the band had to go on you know, at that time, that was part of the deal. And, of course, the festivals overran. And there was a band on before called The Flock. And oh. Yeah. I don't, I, are you familiar with it? Yeah. Oh, Jerry yeah. Goodman. So. Jerry yeah. Goodman. Oh, they they go with the violin player, yeah, yeah. And they weren't coming off in time for the changeover. And this Peter just walked on stage. It's just started, unplugged. They just started, just started pulling plugs out. Just yeah. pulled, pulled their ramps off. Yeah, no. just pulled the plugs out. Yeah. That was the end of that. <laughs> Superb. So... They, they, this, we're looking here at the, the cover of Led Zeppelin 2, which was uh, where, they, where, where the band are kind of mm. dressed up like First World War German air racers, uh, accompanied by various other parties. And we, we, think, we think Peter Grant is one of those figures. He's on supposed that cover. to be, but we don't know which one it is, do we? He's the third one the third from the one left, in, yeah. right. but, he, they, but the very fact that he was talked about... Yes. Indicates just how close the relationship is. Because we couldn't think of another manager no, of a band being on the cover. Think, I can't think of another manager, no. Certainly not back then. And that's it, you know. He, I mean, people, it's that cliche, oh, he's a fifth member of the band. But in certain ways, I think he was, you know. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> and he gloried in the reputation that he was starting to to um, to develop, didn't he? Yes, he liked the idea I that think people so. people mm. whispered about him and you know mm. and wouldn't say things to his face. Definitely. And I, every now and again, he would do something violent, as far as I can see, just to keep that reputation going. I think there was. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of verbal violence. There was a lot of implied violence. But you know, periodically, something would happen. You know. I was on my way here this evening mm. and uh, bumped into a neighbour of mine and told him what I was doing. I said, we were going to talk about this book. And he said, oh, I, I used to work at the agency mm. in 1968 that promoted the new Yardbirds. And Grant had gone in, in there saying, we've changed our name now to, to Led Zeppelin. Can you change the name on all the posters? And the guy said, I don't think it would be possible. And his response was to tie him to the chair in the mm. office, carry him out of the office, down the stairs, and plonk him in the middle of heavy traffic in <laughs> on Oxford Street and leave him there. Yeah, that's I mean, no, I don't think he was hurt or anything. No. Clearly, it, very, very... Very, that's not the response you expected. No, it's sort of humiliating. Oh, okay. If you can't yeah. do it, you can't do it. No more. Yeah. So those kind of things, those kind of reputations, they, they, they spread. Those rumors. those stories just went like yeah. wildfire. And, and I could imagine them. that happening. And they put him down there. They'd laugh. I mean, you know, now we'd all take our phones out, I'll take a picture. Yeah, yeah. But they'd laugh about it, and then they bring him back in. So he's probably in traffic for. Well, now there'd be illegal action. Now, yeah, of course. Yeah. But, you know, but that—that's how it was, sort of was then. There was all this sort of. There was always sort of. A kind of edge to stuff that yeah. went on. People were sort of vaguely humiliated or things. It was like Bill Harry, who was Led Zeppelin's first PR, and he was in the Oxford Street office. He had an office in there. And oh, right. He resigned after having his trousers literally torn off his body 
again in the coach and horses in Soho, which seems where we're all sort of going. Yeah, it? it is. So, but it just sort of stood there by John Bonham, just ripped the trousers off the back of him, and you just sort of stood in the middle of Soho. With that. You've got something in the book about the. Uh, mm the you know, legendary occasion where Robert Stigwood was said to be dangled out of a yeah. <laughs> out of a out of a, a window over Cavendish Square I think it was that's the one mm. how true do you think that is well I think he was definitely dangled out the window but oh I'm, okay yeah fair but, enough I'm not 100% sure whether Peter was there, but Peter claimed he was. And this is when he was working for Don Arden. Stigwood had tried to poach the small faces, and Don hired a few guys and said, we want to make a, you know, want to make a point. So they went to Stigwood's office, Cavendish Square, four floors up, grabbed hold of him. Uh, Don, it was all rehearsed. Don did this thing beforehand. He said, I'm going to get the ashtray and smash it on his desk, because he knew that Stigwood had a very heavy glass ashtray. So he got hold of that, smashed it down on the desk, cracked the top of the desk got hold of him the idea was they push him out to the window and say you know you'll end up down there if you try and poach one of my bands again but his minders had decided to play a trick on Don and they got hold of Stigwood and actually put him over and apparently Arden was mortified by this and they had hold of him over there and Peter always claimed he was one of the ones that had hold of him so but uh... The learning of this is a little bit of violence in the music business goes an awful long way. Yes, because everybody talked about that they do. the whole time. They talk it up. Yes, they do. And I mean, when I was talking to, I think it was uh, Harvey Lisberg who managed the, oh, who was it? The 10CC. Before 10CC in the 60s. Herman's Hermits. Because right, yeah, he got Peter yeah, yeah. to drive Herman's Hermits around. When I spoke to Harvey about this, he said those stories were legendary even then. You know, it's not just something we've been talking about. In the last few years, he said, even in the 60s, we knew the stories about Gene Vincent and Robert Stig. We, we'd heard all that stuff. Yeah. So now they, um, we're looking here at a picture of, of Grant and, 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 and Robert Plant, and, and Grant is wearing a T-shirt saying, in for a quick garden. What's the meaning of that? Well, that story has two different meanings. I've only known one of them before. Now, the story at the time was Brian May put this story around, that when Queen went to see Peter for management, uh, Zeppelin had just come back from playing Madison Square Gardens. And one of Peter turned around and said, oh, we've just been to New York, we've just gone in for a quick garden, which is his sort of description of playing Madison Square Garden. And hoovering up hundreds of yeah. thousands of dollars. That's it. And, <laughs> Brian, and Brian May tells a story that was so impressed, sitting on this table, thinking behind the desk, you know, when will we ever get to play Madison Square Gardens? But when the book actually came out, uh, Warren phoned me up and said, uh, Peter's son, is that in for a quick garden? I said, yeah. I said, about the Madison Square Gardens. He went, nah. I said, what is it? Because it was my dad's nickname for a blowjob. <laughs> so I, t- oh, right. I went, a blowjob? I went, he goes, yes. And a few weeks, a couple of days later, I got another phone call from one of the road crew. He goes, I've just read the book. I went, great. He goes, is that in for a quick garden? I said, oh, God. I said, it's Madison Square. No, no, no. It's a blowjob. So I don't know. You know, that's, that's a short answer. Could be both things. It must be nice to have your yeah. children talking about where you're after you go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, dear old dad. We oh, spoke dear old dad, dad all over. Dad. Where a is lot he? of people think when he said the quick garden, it's Madison Square Garden. But yeah. no, it wasn't. No, let me there put you it on famous. Yeah. Good grief. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but the sheer scale of Led Zeppelin's you know, success mm. in the United States in the seventies is still the kind of the kind of gold standard, isn't it? For Absolutely. Kind of yeah. Sheer 
excess. I mean, how big were these gigs that they were playing? Well, I mean, you can see that's Kaiser Stadium, San Francisco, you know, up to... I think it was, a, was about 80,000 they played to at Tampa, I think, it, on that tour or the one after, when that broke the Beatles' uh, attendance record. It, it was, they would become bigger than any other band ever, so that was this sort of... Each time they toured, it got bigger and bigger, and then, of course, I think by about 1975, you go like, well, there's nowhere left to go how 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 big can you get i think this kind of glory years probably musically and on a personal level for for peter grant and for led zeppelin it was probably that time so the 70 to 72 73 because that was when that was before the problem started so what were yeah. the problems well the problems fundamentally were dr- hard drugs heroin came into the band and enormous mountains of cocaine which Peter got sort of introduced to and which he took to like a duck to water. And obviously with that came sort of paranoia and suspicion. They're getting more and more money each time they tour so they can afford a, you know, everything gets bigger. And the was that tension that you were talking about? Was that about Jimmy Page getting the lion's share of it all? Was that, was that happening at that stage? Uh, or were think, they just making so much money that it didn't I happen? think they were making so much money they didn't care. I think, but I think, that ten, I think that pecking order over the money came later. Yeah. I think it was okay. I think, to be frank, I think having a heroin addict in the band or someone using heroin in the band started to impact quite seriously on it after a while and that's another job for peter to sort of keep everything together all the timekeeping timekeeping started to sort of disappear on the road the gigs start an hour later or an hour and a half later and if you don't like it it's like fuck off so you know they became more bullish and aggressive in their dealings with everybody else around them and the manager was no longer the person who could say let's get this sorted out no because it's obviously he was more yeah. out of his tree than anybody else. well he was as much out of his tree yeah right, certainly right. For, certainly for some of the time right mm. and then there's kind of personal tragedy intervenes here that robert plant loses his son and mm. so when when's that that happened sort of 77 the last right. time zeppelin played america and it sort of happened about to 24 hours after an enormous fight sort of backstage at the Oakland Coliseum in San Francisco, in which Peter and his bodyguard, John Binden, who was a sort of part-time actor and full-time criminal, sort of got involved in a, in a scrap with a security guard who'd pushed over Peter's son, Warren, by accident. And it all got very messy and very bloody. They played the following day's gig because the promoter, Bill Graham, didn't want to cancel then he arranged to have them arrested and charged and so on. And then shortly after that, Robert Plant's son died while Plant was in America with Led Zeppelin. So he died suddenly of a, I think it was a stomach illness, stomach infection. So obviously that brought everybody crashing back to earth. The rest of the tours cancelled. You know, uh, John Bonham's been charged. Uh, Peter's been charged. Richard Cole's been charged. So they're facing criminal charges. Plant's son's dead. Plant goes home, you get the, the whole impression thing that falls away. The, that it that starts to the decline. Point. From yeah, that I point think that's onward, the tipping never point. Never recovers, does it? No, it never recovered after that. That yeah. really was the tipping point. Absolutely. And whether whether a lot of people, I mean, I'm not saying people wish, wish personal tragedy on people, but there were there were people in the music business thinking they've got their comeuppance. I'm sure there was. Yeah. I mean, Bill Graham, the promoter, Bill Graham, absolutely, Peter. They hated each other. You know, they really did because they were two very powerful characters. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, Bill was a very powerful man who'd run things his way. And he came up against this sort of huge 
Englishman who wanted to run things his way, and the yeah. two of them clashed yeah. completely. Yeah. Yeah. So the scale of which they were doing things, you know, the, the, the Led Zeppelin plane with the... Which actually yeah. had a fireplace. It had a isn't real it? fireplace. You know? I can't imagine yes. it was a log fire crackling in it. I know. It did have a fireplace. Which he is had a fire. It's great, though. Really. Yeah. Something to stand but in around. But in a way, those kind of, they're, they're kind of cliches now, but they kind of invented a lot of that, didn't they? The, Absolutely. The, the Rolls Royce Silver Shadows being driven into, you know, yes. swimming pools and all that kind of yeah. stuff. You know, the, 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 the mountains of cocaine, the private plane. That, that, that was them, really, wasn't it? It was totally them. And the first private plane they had wasn't very good. And they had Led Zeppelin, but it was stuck on with a transfer. First time it took off, the transfer came off. <laughs> so. It's like the Ryanair. <laughs> it was the Ryan. If you actually see pictures, you go, well, it's Easy, a private yeah. jet, but it was the Ryanair of private jets. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one you've got there is uh, the Starship. That was the best one. And then Caesar's Chariot after that. Oh, hello. And he finished yeah. up with, I'm not marrying, but, but, but just getting divorced inevitably. That's and, right. and going off with a kind of, it's such a cliche now, but the Playgirl Bunny. Is That's that right? Playboy Bunny, it's, yeah. It's, Cindy, yeah. yeah. Who came to the house and uh, moved in in sort of around about seven, 1978 and left, didn't leave till about 1985. And she wasn't very much older than Peter's son and daughter. So he just started behaving like a, like a rock star, really, didn't he? In a lot of ways he did, yeah. yes. But, I mean, obviously this coincided with Zeppelin falling apart and John Bonham dying. So... They, you know, as the so when did John Bonham die? 1980. Right, and that yeah. was sort of the end of it. And as, as Peter's son and daughter said to me, you know, during that period after that, they, you know, he spent an enormous amount of time in his sort of 14th century moated mansion uh, upstairs in the bedroom. There he is. There we go. That's the house. Yeah. Yeah, you make a really interesting mm. point that when a band splits up, you know, musicians are employable. They can go off and, mm. and work with other people. They can make other records. They can form other groups. They can do production. But managers aren't instantly employed. No. From being incredibly in demand mm. and their time being full up, they're, they're, they go from that to being completely redundant for a period of time. Yeah. And he found that very, very hard, didn't he? I think he wanted to walk away from it because he, he was approached by a lot of other people. To, to, he had a man wanted him to manage yeah. him. Adam Ant remembers going down That's to That's a marriage made in heaven. Can, can you imagine good. what would have happened yeah. there? Oh, you know, um, Gary Moore, various people. And he would have these sort of brief flirtations with a group, you know, and then just it, something wouldn't work out or something would, you know, something wouldn't happen. He'd just walk away. I think he lost interest in it. I think after Led Zeppelin, it's like, where do you go after Led Zeppelin? And after the death of John Bonham, who he was very close to as well, that was just... He couldn't be bothered. And lost an amazing amount of weight. The doctor told him after his heart attack he had to lose 150 pounds. Yeah, a whole person. He said, oh, yeah, a whole person. Whole person. <laughs> he did, he did eventually I, I end up. I love the idea that yeah. he finished up living in this kind of, uh, you know, manor house with actually with a moat around it and a drawbridge. I mean, yes. It's just, it's, again, these things are kind of 70s, 80s cliches. On there, this is a working drawbridge, is It's that a right? working drawbridge, yeah. yeah. So yeah. if he didn't want you to come in, that once he could that literally... Draw, yeah, he wouldn't let any car in unless he recognised the uh, number plate because he had CCTV over there by the gate and in his bedroom I say his bedroom it was bigger than this room he had a four poster bed and he'd have a control panel for the uh, CCTV which obviously in the late 70s and 80s was not going to be like now do it on your phone but some Warren said to me it was like the Starship Enterprise in there and he'd look at the TV screen to see who was there and if he didn't recognise the number plate the drawbridge wouldn't go down I mean, Jake Riviera, obviously the manager went there because to see him to get release Dave Edmonds because Dave Edmonds was signed to Led Zeppelin's label Swan Song, and you know Jake Riviera couldn't get in because Peter didn't recognise the car. 
had to scale he's stuck, walls. He's stuck there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's extraordinary. So Peter Grant kind of ended up like a character out of a movie, didn't absolutely, he? Really? Absolutely. Know. Until he sort of cleaned his act up and, uh, like you say, lost all the weight, gave up the drugs became a grandfather and that was again another tipping point another touchy moment at the end when he's uh, uh, all these giant pike <laughs> that's in his right. moat uh, e- eating his beloved ducklings and what was his response it was like something out of Withnail the night yes they go- got the shotguns out you yeah. know, he, he had a, a lot of the roadies for Bad Company and Zeppelin or certainly some of them when, the band, when those bands split up they came and worked at the house and their job was to sort of drive the kids to school make uh, clean the cars make Sunday dinner and just sit around the house. Basically. Roadies make Sunday dinner. Yeah, make, yeah, yeah. yeah Such a bizarre world, yeah. isn't it? And they just weird. sit around the house not doing very much. Yeah. And, you know, having to, you know, they're just endlessly washing the cars. There was this collection of cars and endlessly washing the cars. And if Peter comes down from the bedroom and wants something, it have, there had to be four fillet steaks in the fridge at any given time. So there was always food there that was just going off. And they'd sit there and then, like you say, then every now and again, Peter would go, we're going to go fishing and come down and throw a shotgun to all of them. And they go down to the moat and shoot, and shoot the pi- and shoot the pipe. You must have done it. You must why have done a film treatment. Because why man. hasn't the film been made of it? Well, this is it. People throw. Malcolm McLaren wanted to make the film, didn't he? Malcolm oh yes, go on. Tell us what happened well, with that. Well, what happened? Malcolm McLaren then for a little while, Mike Figgis was involved yeah, yeah. in this, and it's like a lot of film things. It starts off with one set of people and goes through and nothing ever happens. Yeah. Malcolm McLaren stayed with it to the end. And a lot of the material that I got for the book was courtesy of Mike Figgis, who kindly digitised so the two and a half hours of Peter sat in a hotel in Eastbourne telling stories to Malcolm McLaren and Figgis and a, a film researcher. And many of those stories are absolute gold. I mean, some of them can never, ever be broadcast while, yeah, certain, yeah. while certain people are still alive. Jimmy Page mainly, but you know they and that was that film was ongoing up until up until Peter died in 1995. And when I went to the the researcher, the last researcher that worked on it, he had pages and pages of interviews with Peter, in which he really sort of talked quite openly about a lot of stuff that was going on during the you know the final so, days of Zeppelin. So leaving aside the kind of dark side, mm. what do you think was his contribution to? Music. Well, I think he changed the business and he put the power in the hands of the artist. I mean, so many of the That's things true. that we now think of as industry standard come about as a result of Peter. Everything from merchandising, the whole way through to bands getting paid on time. I mean, you could turn around and say, well, they're all overpaid now. Should have kept it the way it was before. <laughs> but, you know, he did change things fundamentally. And it's interesting when you talk to modern managers or not managers that followed him, Ed Bicknell, Danny Goldberg, Nirvana's manager, who worked for Peter when he was 21 as a sort of, as a PR, he said to me, he said, I still, even in the final days of Nirvana, with everything that was going on with Kurt Cobain, I used to think, what would Peter do? What would Peter do? And he used to occasionally take Nirvana aside and say, when I was with Zeppelin, Peter Grant and Zeppelin did it like and they'd all listen. Even Kurt Cobain, they'd all listen. Yeah, I did yeah. say it to him, well, Danny, it didn't really work out in the end, did it? But, you know, he yeah. sort of, but he, did, he did try, and those people still talk about him. I suppose the you first know. thing you've got to do is be 20 stone, though. Yeah, really. it's <laughs> that's kind of, it. It's kind yeah. of your starting point. Though. Yeah, Danny's quite slim and small. It was never going to no. get anywhere. Well, look, um, it's an extraordinary story, and I think you should look at doing a movie treatment. Uh, but, but the factual side... 
is here in this book, Bring It On Home, Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin, and Beyond, the story of Rock's Grace's manager. Would you please thank Mark Blake? Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. You've been listening to The Word Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, we would really appreciate it if you would take the time to rate it on iTunes. You can find many more Word Podcasts at wordpodcast.co.uk and if you'd like to come to one of our Word in Your Ear live events, then you can find details at wiyelondon.com or just Google us. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.